Well, good morning. My name is Nancy, and I am delighted to be here. I sort of feel like that annoying aunt that comes to the family reunion that wants to squeeze your cheeks and say, you guys have grown so much and you look so cute. Because part of my job is to quietly build connective tissue in the Bay Area between our churches. There are, as best we can tell right now, about 3,500 churches in the Bay Area that follow Jesus. And your main job is to be the church that you are. My job is to look at that little 5 to 10% of extra energy you have and see what's possible if we connect churches all around the Bay Area for something purposeful. What might happen? I think it's very interesting that the last prayer that Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, the last public prayer that he prayed, he spent on unity. He didn't talk much about unity in the rest of the Bible. Why would he do that? When I hear unity, I think of once a year, pastors meet for bad chicken. They pray. They encourage each other. They think something happened. Nothing happened. And they go home. <laughs> I don't think that's what Jesus was praying for. I used to be a nurse. You pay a lot of attention to what somebody does with the last words that they have. I believe that Jesus was thinking in his mind about an uncommon unity that I'm not sure we've seen before in many places, and I'm not sure we've ever seen it here in the Bay Area, but I think it's close. What's possible? And when Jesus prayed that prayer in John chapter 17, do you understand that there is a reason why in the first verse of chapter 18 that Satan is moving him towards the cross? I believe there is a power when an uncommon unity gets released among Christians in a geographic area. And you are a part of that. Your reputation around the Bay Area as a hallmark fundamental church in the city of San Francisco is stellar. And for you to be a part of what happens. It's also interesting that when Jesus prayed his prayer of unity, he knew full well the price he had to pay for unity on his own team. Because you see, a value is not a value until it inflicts pain. And when it inflicts pain, then it's a value. And Jesus on purpose put on his team Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. These boys could not have been more fundamentally ideologically opposed than, well, you fill in the blank. Simon the Zealot wanted the overthrow of the Roman government. Matthew the tax collector worked for the Roman government. And Jesus knew that if there was going to be a power release from an uncommon unity, it would have to come from a unity of opposites, because that's what unity is. We're going to talk a little bit more about that this morning also, but I know that it's the ending of the series on marriage, so I need to talk about marriage too. <laughs> but even when we talk about marriage, we're not just only talking about marriage, are we? Because marriage is just one vehicle that God uses for our soul formation and for the kingdom of God to be understood in concrete and tangible ways in our world. A number of years ago, before John and I came back to the Bay Area, 16 years ago to be exact, we lived for nine years in Chicago, which I don't recommend. No. <laughs> Having grown up in Los Angeles and getting out to the flattest land I've ever seen where winter starts in October and ends in May. I told the marriage group yesterday, I'm not sure which pioneer ever stopped his wagon in Chicago and thought, this is where we should stay. <laughs> it's not the brightest bulb in the pack. But when we were back there, 
Uh, I led a ministry at our church for the better part of our time back there that we called Axis. It was for the 18 to 20-something generation. It was a lot like all of you who look so young to me, like the amniotic fluid is still behind your ears. <laughs> we had about 1,500 people in two services on the weekend in the gymnasium in our church. And I remember one night when I was getting ready to speak to the group, my husband left the regular church to run over and tell me something. And when he walked in the gymnasium, he found me in the front. He said, wow, I have never smelled so much cologne and aftershave in one room in my life. I said, never underestimate the, the energy of unpaired people trying to find each other as a way to grow a ministry. So after that night, he used to teach me, the only thing you need to do to teach on in this ministry is you just need to teach three things. You need to teach on sex, end times, and will there be sex in the end times? <laughs> so that's pretty much how I grew it. In this ministry, we had people much like you who were trying to follow Jesus or trying to decide if they would follow Jesus, trying to understand who Jesus was. They wanted to bring the kingdom into their work. They, many of them were hoping to find a partner. There were two people in particular that stood out because I did both of their weddings. The first couple met downstate in a pub that was on the campus of the University of Illinois down in Carbondale. And the way they told the story is she walked into the bar and they both looked like Ken and Barbie. And he was sitting at the bar surrounded by beautiful women and she walked up and handed him a matchbook with her phone number on it and said, I don't wait in line. I know, I know, yeah, y'all can use that. But if you use it on each other, it's going to go from cool to corny very fast because they're going to know where you got it. The second couple that I married, part of their journey was she had been married once before in her early 20s. It didn't last very long. It was very painful. And she made sure that she dated slow because, as she put it, I don't want any surprises. I said, you don't want any surprises? I'd get a cat. <laughs> I, I wouldn't get married. And both of these couples were so excited when they found the right person, when they found their soulmate, when they went on this journey, and neither one of their marriages lasted longer than 10 years. There's all kinds of reasons for it. But what can start with great promise and hope is not always a guarantee. And marriage is as much a metaphor for our journey with God as it is for what it is that we create in our marriages. Marriage was intended by God to be a sacrament, to be a symbol of significance, an outward and a visible sign of an inward spiritual practice, a visible, a visible symbol of the reality of God in our lives, a means by which we receive and enact the grace of God in our lives. It is a covenant and a promise. In Genesis chapter 2, the first of a number of times these phrases get used, God uses them when he joins Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 2, he said that they will become, they, for this reason they will leave their fathers and their mothers 
They will be united to each other and they will become one flesh. And they were together and they were naked and they felt no shame. God said in that passage earlier, it's not good to be alone. I'm going to find you a suitable helper. He brought them together and they said wonderful things about each other and they left and they cleaved to each other. But here's what we have to remember, that that passage is set in the context of the greater Old Testament passage, where what was true about most marriages is that they were arranged and polygamy was allowed. So when we pull these verses out of Scripture and hold them up as a vision of marriage, we're not actually reflecting what God says when he says, put it back in here in the whole context of what was going on in the world. Not only were there arranged marriages and polygamy, but in Genesis chapter 29, the Bible records the first love tri triangle between Jacob and Leah and Rachel. We got a little bachelorette going on right here in Genesis. <laughs> and then you flip the pages and you end up in Hosea where God commands the prophet to marry Gomer, who he knows is going to be unfaithful as a way for God's people to understand. There's great hope and promise in marriage, but there's also problems. And when you go back to Genesis 2 with the verses I just read, Genesis 3 and 4 has them violating their vows, blaming and scapegoating each other for each other, hiding and breaking their relationship, exaggerating and lying, getting cursed, evicted, and having two kids, one of whom killed the other. When you say you follow the Bible for your marriage, you need to be wide-eyed as to what you are saying. There's not a single family in Scripture that you could put up on a pedestal and say, I want my marriage to be like that. It is a journey. Here's something else that I feel very, very passionate about. And that is when we talk about marriage, we need not to create a community where single people feel like second-class citizens. Please, please, yes, yes. We can be guilty in our culture of putting marriage up on a pedestal. The Apostle Paul actually says in Corinthians that the greater choice is singleness. The greater choice. A couple of years ago, my husband and I went to the public funeral for Billy Graham. And on the flight out there, I read a number of articles. And one of the people who interviewed Billy the most often wrote an amazing article about the two major regrets among all the minor regrets that Billy had in his life. His two major regrets was, number one, he was gone too much from his family. And number two, he said that for the majority of my ministry, I mistook the American dream for the kingdom of God. They're not the same. They're fundamentally different because the pursuit of the American dream is after beauty and comfort and power and wealth. And there are things in each of those four things I mentioned that can be good, but mostly they take us on the wrong road. And we build shrines to our families and we put them up on pedestals. Instead of looking at what God intended, that from the very beginning of Scripture, the family was intended to be a unit that would extend their inclusion to those who didn't have a family. In Joshua chapter 8, one of my favorite passages, and I'm pretty convinced when I get to heaven, I'm getting, going to be in trouble for having favorite passages, but I do, and so do you, so we might as well just admit it. In Joshua chapter 8, um, the story is Israel has been captive for 400 years in Egypt. 
totally given up hope that they'll ever see the promised land again. Moses comes up through the ranks, through lots of stumbles and starts. God causes him to be the leader that gives hope to the people that they're going to be out of the promised land. They leave Egypt. They think we're on our way, which honestly, if you follow the map, is about a 12-day journey up to Israel for 40 years. And then at the end of 40 years, Moses passes away and Joshua is given the reins to take the people into the promised land. And here's what I think. After 400 years and then 40 years, I'd be ready to say, all right, for just a couple of generations, I just want it to be our tribe. Okay? We've earned the right. We've paid the price. I want this radical community of mine just to be for me for a while. And there's this little verse in Joshua chapter 8 that gets overlooked a lot. I think some of the obscure verses in the Bible are some of the most interesting. And Joshua stops the people before they go into the land that they're so hopeful for, and he builds an altar of remembrance. And then he pulls out everything that Moses had written, and he reads it out loud to the people. And then just as a throwaway verse, it says this. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women would never mention the women back then, and the children, and the aliens who lived among them. Now, I'm not saying, saying singles or aliens, far from it. Seriously, I'm saying that the purpose of families is to open the semi-permeable membrane to include singles in our group, to value them as much, to get marriage off the pedestal and say that's not the end goal for every person in the human race. Uh, John and I have been part of a home group at our church for 15 of the 16 years that we've been there now. And there are five couples and one single woman. And we love having her here. A couple of years ago, we started looking at our home group and thinking maybe it was time to disband. Maybe it was time to get a new group. We'd been together a long time. And Karen said, I hope you won't. You guys are my family. That's a good enough reason to stay together right there. The community of God's people are married people and divorced people and people that are dating and people that are single and people that are all over the map because God's love is that inclusive. And our marriages and our communities are supposed to reflect that. So here's what I want to do for the last few minutes that we have together here, 19 minutes and four seconds, because I hate sermons that go too long. Every Sunday my husband preaches, I tell him, great job, five minutes too long. Great job, five minutes too long. I want to just talk about two categories that we all long for, two categories that I believe are true north in our journey to follow Jesus, two categories that I think marriage is predicated and built on. Two categories that are possible also outside of marriage, but that are so important. That we imitate Jesus in our relationships, that we participate in the spiritual growth and the character formation of another person in our marriages. That marriage trains us to love each other and to love God well. Or as Tim Keller would say, marriage is not designed to make you happy. It's designed to make you holy. So how do we go on that journey together? Just two very simple categories. All of us long to be known. All of us long to be known. All of us have somewhere hidden in us that feeling of if they really knew all of who I am, 
they wouldn't stay. And to be fully known and deeply known is such a reflection of our relationship with God. We're going to talk about that. And then the other deep longing that we have in light of being known is to be deeply loved. That when you do know all the bits of me, the shiny bits and the not so shiny bits, will you stay and will you not only stay, will there be love there? So let's look at what does it mean to truly be known because to truly be known, that means that you belong in Genesis chapter 2, we saw that the two belonged to each other. Jesus has this amazing progression with his disciples that he moves from calling them to follow him to in John 15, he says, I'm going to change the word I use about you. You are my friend. You are my friend. I know you. It's interesting when you think about Jesus knowing each of the disciples well, and especially Peter who made more public faux pas that are recorded than the rest of the disciples put together. And then Jesus picked him to be the successor and to turn the keys of the kingdom over. Why? Jesus fully knew Peter and he fully loved Peter. When John and I were first married, we just started on that early journey to what it was like to know each other. The first two gifts my husband gave me within a first couple months of being married weren't his best move. <laughs> On my birthday, I excitedly tore into a wrapped box and I pulled a dress up out of it and I held it. And without that, you know that little man that is guarding your mouth that tells you, oh, don't, don't say that? He had the day off that day. <laughs> and I said, oh, this looks like something your mother would wear. I know, I know, I know. It was 36 years ago. I might have said it different now, but it had shoulder pads and it had little, literal jewels on the shoulder pads and it had this tightly cinched waist and this flared skirt. I was like, oh, I can't. I can't. I won't. <laughs> and here's the choice that got made in that moment. I could either do the and then he would wonder why do I never see her wearing that dress or I could say this is the beginning of just one way in which you don't know me <laughs> seriously seriously so the next question I asked was did you keep the receipt because we had no money back in those days and then would you go with me back to the store so I can show you what I might like the second thing he got me, now he's not here today, <laughs> which is why I feel so comfortable telling you all this, was a beautiful little tiny pair of gold and amethyst pierced earrings. They were beautiful. Now you're thinking what in the world could possibly be wrong with that? I didn't have pierced ears. <laughs> and honestly, once you're sleeping with somebody, you expect them to pay attention to your earlobes. <laughs> So I said, they're beautiful. I'm going to go get my ears pierced so that I can wear them. <laughs> now, here's the deal. Nowadays, when John gives me a gift, it's born out of a deep knowing of me. It's a silly little example, but it's one small way. And there's bigger ways, and there have been more painful ways. 
in which we have had to have the conversations with, you don't really know me. For John, those of you that were at the marriage gathering yesterday, which was wonderful, you are so, it was just wonderful meeting all of you. Um, John's an introvert. I'm not. And so, many times when he'd be in his study working or writing, I'd fly in on a breeze, open the door, and start chattering like a little magpie, talking about who we were going to have dinner with next week and what groceries needed to happen and what the kids were doing. And for me, it was so much fun. (laughs) He wasn't experiencing that way. And honestly, it took him years, because he's such a nice person, to be able to say to me, honey, I love you, and it's kind of cute when you come in and do that butterfly thing, but as an introvert, here's what you need to know. When you leave the room, it takes me about 15 or 20 minutes to find my place where I was before and get back with the same energy I had. I had no idea. I literally used to lean next to him two minutes before he was going to go up to preach a sermon and say, hey, the the Adams want to have dinner next week. Can we do that? Do we have to discuss this right now? Sure, works for me. (laughs) But see, working for me is not the point. I am on a journey in my marriage, with my children, with my friends, with people I don't like, with people I work with, with my community, with the world, with strangers, to genuinely and deeply know them. What does that look like? How do you do that with the other? How do you make differences not less than or greater than, but just are? Because the call to be known is to understand that God wired all of us so differently on purpose. It's interesting to me that when Jesus started his ministry, that instead of going both to the religious organizations and the religious buildings and the religious leaders, he went to the edge and the margins of society. And he did it so intentionally that it made the religious people mad. And basically for his whole three and a half years, Jesus was preaching this message, the edge is the center. The edge is the center. You in the center have it all wrong. And all of these people that you have now pushed to the edge and told them they are on the outside looking in, there is no outside looking in in my kingdom. There is no glass wall where I can see the joy you're having, but I can't get in. That is not the kingdom of God. And our marriages and our families, they become places in our communities where we have this radical inclusion because we know people. We talked a little bit yesterday at the marriage seminar that Les and Leslie Parrott, who are Christian psychologists, talk about conflict is the only way to intimacy. What? Conflict is the only way to intimacy. And when we go on this journey of loving and understanding the other and understanding our differences, that's when love can take root. That's when love can be something that is impossible to be ignored. And that is something we can offer both in our marriages and in our friendships. How do we belong and know each other? Every one of us comes to marriages and relationships with baggage. We're all carrying a piece of luggage, and most of it we didn't pack. And then throughout our marriage, we're opening up that baggage, and we're like, oh, how, how did this get in here? What, what is this? Oh, I don't want you to see this. And 
a safe, a relationship that follows after God's heart over time becomes a place where I can open up my baggage and show you what's in it. And you can do the same with me. And we can ask questions and we can have concerns and we can be confused, but we can also listen to understand and to love. And for our marriages and our communities to be those kind of places, now you're talking about Christians living in such a way that we will be known by the way that we love. So much so that it will be impossible to ignore. What's your journey like to know other people? Even if you go out for brunch or lunch after church, how much do you talk? How many questions do you ask? How much do you listen? How well do people feel known by you when they leave you? And in our marriages, those ought to be the premier places where we are, we are doing that. And then over time, as you know me, my next question is, will you still love me? For those of you that are older enough, when I'm 64, but most of you aren't old enough to know what that means, so <laughs> Google it. So how many of you have seen the movie, uh, the Beatles movie, yesterday? How many of you have seen it? It's ridiculously phenomenal. But I was explaining the premise to a good friend of mine. She said, oh, so it's a true story. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. Something didn't cataclysmically happen in the world and everybody forgot there was a group called the Beatles. That, that did not happen. It's not based on a true story. Sorry, I digress. What does it mean to be loved? Love is actually defined this way. Toby Kurth, who is a pastor here in um, San Francisco, who I admire a lot, says that love really is inconveniencing yourself for the sake of the other. Inconveniencing yourself for the sake of the other. If I wasn't almost 64, I would have that tattooed on my body, but then I'd have to keep stretching it to be able to read it. So <laughs> I'll, I'll let you guys do that, okay? How do I inconvenience myself for the sake of the other? If, it's, if I'm really honest, what I mostly do in relationships is I think about what's best for me. I think about how I can get what I want. I think of how I can hold on to my own comfort and control, which Henry Nouwen says are the two things we have to surrender in order to grow. How can I hold on to my own comfort and control so that I get what I want out of a relationship? And God is saying, no, no, you have it, you have it all wrong. The upside down teachings of Jesus was the incarnation itself. How do I inconvenience myself for the sake of other people? Marriages and healthy relationships that are known and loved reflect Jesus' stubborn love for the church. The kind of love that God had when he created the garden and his beautiful hope and dream was dashed by the second chapter. By the end of the second chapter was starting again with new hope. There was a prophecy of Jesus even at the end of that chapter. God is constantly starting over and over and over again because he inconveniences himself for the sake of the other person. Years ago, I used to be an emergency room nurse. And one night, about 1130 at night, when I was supposed to be done with my shift, a young woman came in. She was in her late 20s. Her husband and their two small children had already left to go up to Mammoth. This is when I worked down in Los Angeles for a vacation. She had to work on Friday and stay an extra day. She was going to join him over the weekend, but she got sick. And so she came in at 11.30 at night, which is the change of shift, which is what I was thinking about. And one of the doctors grabbed me and said, hey, Nancy, the rest of us are in report. Do you mind staying and getting her history and her vital signs until we're done with the report? Now, I've been 
a Christian long enough to know that you sin on the inside where nobody can see you. And on the outside, you say, oh, I'd, be, I'd be glad to do that. Sure, not a problem. I'm here to serve. And on the inside, I'm thinking, I have worked four shifts in a row. I'm so tired. The other nurses have not worked four shifts in a row. Why wouldn't you pick them? It's 11.30. But I didn't show that. So I went in, and I got her vital signs, and I got her history, and I asked her a few questions. And inside, I thought, you have the flu. Nobody goes to the emergency room at 11.30 at night for the flu. It's a change of shift. Did I mention that? <laughs> I'm tired. I worked four shifts. I want to go home. You go to the doctor for the flu. You wait till the morning for the flu. And then the doctor came back in and he looked at her and he felt the same way and he wanted to run a blood test. And then he said to me, hey, Nancy, do you mind just waiting a little bit longer till the blood test comes back? Be glad to. <laughs> because I was thinking about me, even though God gave me a job where service is so apparent. And then... A few minutes later, the fax machine, again, Google it, big machine, and it spits out paper with results of the blood tests. And the doctor and I looked at it, and in 30 seconds knew she didn't have the flu. She had fulminating leukemia. She never left the hospital. She was with us for the next six weeks in the ICU. In that moment, I stopped thinking about myself. And in that moment, I said to the doctor, I will stay with her until her sister gets here, off the clock. I will, I will not leave her side till her sister gets here. And you can imagine for the next couple of hours, she was between shock and disbelief and wanting to talk and process. And you can imagine what my drive home was like, where I feel like God said to me, how many times... Well, you need to understand that everybody has a story and that story changes how you know them and how you love them. And I had a chance for you to serve tonight and you eventually got there, but it took you longer than it should have, right? He wasn't wrong. For the next six weeks, I went up to her uh, room in the ICU. I met her husband, I met her children. I watched her go from looking like she had the flu to being utterly unrecognizable in the bed. And I watched their marriage play out for six weeks in the ICU in kind of an accelerated version. They were Christ followers. And what was fascinating with only six weeks left to go, the kindness that they showed each other, the fights they still got into, yes, human, normal, the forgiveness that they extended each other, the way that they could encourage each other and plan for a future without her, even though it was the last thing they wanted to talk about. I got to watch them love each other in a pretty profound way and in a very real way that made me ache to say, I would like for my marriage to be like that. They were radically inclusive. There were more people that came through that door in her room in the ICU than I saw in a long time because they had used their marriage as a semi-permeable membrane to say what we are creating here is wonderful and we want to open the doors and offer it to others. It was a clinic. It was amazing. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 2, which is called the Christ hymn, which in most of our Bibles is translated, even though he was God, he took upon the form of a servant. But there is a professor at Westmont named Jerry Hawthorne who just passed away a few years ago who was a very brilliant New Testament Greek scholar. And he said, actually, let me tell you what it really says. 
It doesn't say that at all. It says since he was God, because he was God, he took upon the form of a servant. It is at the nature of God to serve. You are never more like God than when you serve. Genesis chapter 1 opens up with God serving people before he even created them, creating a beautiful place for them to live before they had done anything for themselves. And that Genesis story stood in direct contrast to every other creation story back in the beginning of time where every other nation told the story that humans were created to serve the gods. And Genesis says, wrong story. That's why the story by the New Testament is called the good news. It is a remarkable story of good news. I want to close by reading a passage from Jeremiah that is just a beautiful picture of what God is doing with us when he knows us and loves us and what can be true of our marriages, what can be true of our community, what can be true in our singleness as well. In Jeremiah chapter 24, this is what God says to his people. My eyes will watch over you for your good. I will put you back in your land and I will build you up and I will not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you. I will give you a heart to know me that I am the Lord. You will be my people and I will be your God and you will return to me with all your heart. And in that simple passage, there is the knowing and the loving that is true of who we are in our marriages and in the communities that we build so that it is absolutely impossible to ignore the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, some reasons we have doubt about who you are is because this story is just simply too good to be true. We will spend our whole lives in disbelief, taking little tiny steps and getting little bitty glimpses of the nature of your goodness and your extraordinary fidelity and love for us. And so I pray over all of us in this room, myself deeply included, that we would go on the journey to be known by you and to offer that knowing to other people, that we would listen well and understand and accept. And then what we would do with that information is we would love, we would serve, we would break down borders and walls, and we would move towards the other in a way that people say, I think they know God because they love in such utterly distinct ways, the likes of which I've never seen before. May it be true of reality, church, God. You know better than all of us that in these zip codes surrounding this building, there are people that need to see this kind of love. May this be the seismic center for that because we know and love you. Amen.